You, you were in um, Nepal for about nine, nine years all up and India another year. Uh, what, what did the ministry look like there? How, how did it uh, unfold? Yeah, originally um, we just had that strong sense of calling to a particular people group, and uh, in the midst of that, uh, things didn't come exactly the way we expected to go right to that people group, do this work, uh, very remote, uh, geographically, politically, spiritually isolated people group. And because of that, um, we weren't able to go a lot. And so one of the things we had to learn early on was you know, I'm not going to be able to be the frontline guy there. So one of the things I had to step back and say, what are we going to do? And so one of the things we decided early on was we need to start raising up national strategy coordinators. So one of the first things I began to do was to find guys, equip them and train them to do the same thing I was doing. And they were living in these areas that I couldn't live because of the political sensitivities and um, essentially just places even physically difficult for me to live, where these guys were actually more uh, naturally adaptable to that. And what we found is they actually were very good um, strategy coordinators. So they so began tell, to look tell, at a whole Just before people. we go on, uh, Jeff, what, just unpack for us what, what a strategy coordinator is or does. Yeah, a strategy, a strategy coordinator is uh, type, just the type of person that sort of takes a look at a, a whole people group, a segment of society, a city, a city and says, what's it going to take for God to reach this community? And then he steps back from that big picture of what's it going to take and begins to sort of develop a plan of what's the first step I do. And and, and there's really four questions you ask. And the first question is, what do I say in that community? So how do I share the gospel? If they were to believe it, if they heard the gospel, believed it, how do I disciple them? Uh, the next question I want to say is, as I'm discipling them, I want to form them into groups. So how do I form them into a group that fits within their community, that makes sense, that's biblical, and is going to multiply? And lastly, um, the question I want to ask is, how do I develop leaders? But honestly, that question goes back to the first step, because from day one, i got to begin and plan as I'm doing evangelism to start raising up leaders early on by giving them responsibility to the Great Commission to be obedient to it. And um, and so that's sort of a strategy coordinator just is looking at that whole process of developing that big-picture vision but with a practical, simple plan that he's working and doing day in, day out. It's the reason he gets out of bed. And so, so every so morning he looks in the mirror. Hmm. So the strategy coordinator is is a practitioner, they're doing evangelism, they're sharing the gospel, they're making disciples, but they're also thinking of the big picture and how what they're doing can multiply through others. Is, yes. is that what it how looks can like? I bring other people, exactly, how can I bring other people in to help me fulfill this? Because the goal isn't to grow my church, the goal isn't to expand my ministry, the goal is how do I reach the community? How do I uh, expand God's kingdom? So it's a, it's a big picture vision. Uh, in the end, if, if, God, if, I, if my focus is to grow my church, I'm not likely to reach my community. But if my goal is to reach my community, uh, I'm likely to grow my church. So it's a real big picture of how do I reach the community. And 
how did that unfold? How did you train or equip these these nationals, uh, Nepalese, to be strategy coordinators? Yeah, yeah. Early on, it was one of those things. Since there were very few people doing it, Bruce Carlton was one of the guys that had a huge impact on me. And Bruce's challenge to me personally was, he said, "You know, you've been to seminary, you have have a lot of learning, book learning." He said, "But I want to challenge you to go back to the Word of God and pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help you develop a plan." And so that was a great personal challenge to me. And I began to sort of begin looking for those patterns in Scripture. But what I began to do is lead these national brothers and sisters in the same process. And we began to work together, uh, not as one SC, but as multiple SCs. We ended up with about seven strategy coordinators in Nepal who began all of us working together through this process and saying, what's God's plan? Uh, How are we going to do this? And so we began to sort of this plan began to fold out from Scripture and really looking at those five parts. How do I enter into a village? What do I say? How do I disciple them? How do I form my groups? And then how do I multiply my leaders? And so for each one of the guys, they looked a little differently. But the the great thing is there became a freedom as we stood upon the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit was clearly directing us. And uh, so the exciting thing is one of the people groups we were working with in Nepal Although there were only 200 believers, they at this point in time they've sent almost 20 missionaries, mm. uh, which is phenomenal when you think percentage-wise. And uh, and they're sending them to people groups that are different than themselves, and these guys are acting as strategy coordinators. Many times with people groups that have uh, zero believers, and you know, so they're starting from scratch. So it's been amazing how God's used these men, men so, and women. So these new new believers are are becoming missionaries at a rate of 1 to 10, 10% of them. Yeah. Yeah, it's phenomenal. And, what, and what, uh, do you we, look, what do you look for in a strategy coordinator? Can you train anybody to, to play that role or at least to do that ministry? You know, it's honestly the thing I'm looking for is rapid obedience to the Word of God. So one of the things we look at is how do guys respond to the Word? Um, are they willing to be obedient to the Word of God? And, and I think if you were to look at, you know, we try and figure out what's the heart of a church planning movement and what's the what's the what's at the center of it, what's the hedgehog principle, mm-hmm. you know, and it's that founded on the Word of God, the Holy Spirit's in control of the process, but the believer is in rapid, essentially, obedience to the Word. And, and I think that's sort of at the heart of it is we're looking for guys who are just sold out to the Holy Spirit, sold out to the Word, and willing to be obedient. And, um, you know, and I think that's that's really, uh, I mean, there's a lot of things about a strategy coordinator, but that would be three of the things that I would really look for. Hmm. And what unfolded in, in Nepal is, and I understand this sort of approach uh, is happening in, in all sorts of places around the world. Um, but in your yeah. your experience in Nepal, what what was what was the fruit of you know applying those principles? It was well essentially what what happened is we began this in um, Nepal, uh, Bhutan, and India. And uh, what one of the things we learned early on, and I and I never caught this until sort of watching it unfold, and 
there's something called a last frontier people group, and a last frontier people group usually means there's very little or minimal witness, no scriptures, nothing available. And so this strategy coordinator, really what he had to think about when he got out of bed every morning is how do I get into a home and how do I share the gospel? And that had to be his passion. That had to be who he was. Hmm. What, so that, that's what was happening in the Tibetan Buddhists in the Himalayas was how do we get that first believer? Now I got the first believer. How do I get the first church? I got the first church. How do I get beyond this? So we sort of began to see there was a zero-to-one strategy coordinator. The other one we think we had, there were the unreached people groups in Nepal and Bhutan and India. And so this strategy coordinator was a little different because he had people that he could help. So one of the things he immediately did is he began to train others to do what he was doing. And this essentially, because there were more believers, accelerated the um, the church planting movements. And so these guys began to take responsibility for not only trying to be the strategy coordinator, they began raising up others just like them. And so what happened is we began to see insider to insider where what, I would what do train you mean by an in, somebody. insider, Jeff? What's an insider? Well, me, yeah, me being an outsider is very clear. It's pretty obvious. 265 pounds, six foot two, ugly guy from America. Everybody knows I'm an outsider. Mm. But these, these insiders where it was local people group uh, transferred, you know, that leader transfers authority and ownership of the vision, responsibility of the work uh, directly to And what we found was where I might be 7%, 5% successful in mm. finding the right guy, these guys about 20 to 25% of the time were able to raise up leaders much quicker, much more effective than we were. You know, and one the really interesting things that, that we began to see is, you know, Jesus said in John 14, he said, you will do greater things than I myself, you know, talking mm-hmm. to his disciples, telling them, you're going to do things greater than I did. And one of the things we began to see is that what what defines success in ministry, you know, and Sometimes uh, the, it's nickels and noses. How many nickels, how many noses, is that really success in ministry? But based on what Jesus said, if Jesus' goal was that his disciples did greater things than he himself, what should my goal be? So what we began to see is these insiders began to have this goal that their disciples would do greater things than they themselves. And that's when we really start to see the movement take place, when these guys start raising up, empowering, and begin working this plan, but they're giving responsibility to other people. And so these insiders then just, that's where the explosion takes curse, takes place, or the, um, this huge growth takes place, is when they're given responsibility for this uh, versus outsiders uh, always taking responsibility for the plan. And normally the outsider would be an Australian or American or European uh, but what you're seeing is, no, we, we need to mobilize um, local uh, workers and leaders. And is there something in the dynamic, too, because they're relatively new believers, that there's, there's a greater level of, of passion and commitment? Or is it simply the fact that they're nationals? No, I, I think what the interesting thing is is, for us from the outside or those first believers we train, you know, they're looking at it going, 
okay, we don't usually start churches. We don't usually make disciples. And so there's a big learning curve for those first new people trained as a strategy coordinator or a trainer. Hmm. But what happens is you get start seeing a new believer who's second generation, third generation. They think everybody in the world uh, tells people about Jesus. They think everybody in the world makes disciples. They think everybody in the world teaches everybody else seven commands of Christ. They think everybody else in the world baptizes and starts house churches. So they there becomes an inside ethos where it becomes the norm. And as long as that continues to move out, usually the killer of that, honestly, a lot of times is believers. Some believer will come along and say, you can't do that. But most of the time, as long as that continues to move out and that ethos is there, they think that's the norm, and that's that's what's amazing because it's just multiplying God's glory uh, throughout the nations when it when it happens mm. like that. Jeff, uh, ev- every time I share with a group about some of these uh, great things that God's doing in the developing world, a couple of responses I get. One one is, but uh, gee, they they're not mature believers. They're not academically trained. Uh, don't you have problems with it being, I think people have said to me, it's sort of a, uh, a mile wide and half an inch deep or extremes or heresy comes in. All of these sorts of things are raised to, to say, gee, maybe it's, it's, it's not a good long-term strategy to see to rapidly mobilize new believers like this. What, what's, what's your experience? What did you actually see? in terms of the fruit of, of this approach? Yeah, well, the, the, the hard thing to explain, I, I guess, that I don't understand, is you, you look at these new believers who will go out and suffer great persecution. Mm. Yeah, they're not, they're not very educated, but for the sake of the gospel, they'll go do things and boldly proclaim the gospel where we wouldn't. Mm. And yet we will say they're not mature. Mm. And... Uh, and sometimes they don't even have the Bible in their language, or maybe they can't read, but yet they're bold enough to continue proclaiming the gospel. What they know, they practice. It may not be the deepest theological things, you know, but one of the questions I ask is, how deep do we have to be as far as, you know, we always hear people say, I want to go deeper. Well, how much deeper do we need to go before we become obedient to the Word of God? And so this believer knows a little bit, and what he knows, he obeys. And that obedience, as they continue to obey, what we see is it breeds maturity. Mm. And uh, so I, I've not really, you know, we haven't really seen these um, uh, these things that people describe or expect to see. But the other thing is I ask, what about Paul? You know, Paul had Corinth, mm. and he spent two years in Corinth, and he uh, wrote a couple letters to him, and they weren't uh, nice letters. And then he spent uh, three Sabbaths with Thessalonica, and uh, he was amazed at what God had done in Thessalonica. So I don't know that time is a factor mm. as much as rapid obedience to the Word of God is the key factor. Mm. And uh, so I say that to say I think that's really what produces maturity. Uh, if somebody's put in the fire and they obey the Word of God and the Holy Spirit's directing them, uh, we're seeing very mature, very strong believers the other thing we've tried to utilize in the whole church planning movements is apes, essentially based on Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, 
and an ape is an apostle, prophet, uh, evangelist, is they're, they're there to help grow the movement. So there's a thought of how do I grow the movement? How do I grow it wider, reach more people to multiply God's glory? But then also God gave us PTs, pastor teachers. So how do we take that pastor teacher and he creates the depth to the movement? So in a small group, part of the, the thing is these small house churches is discovering who are these apes to grow the movements, then who are the pastor teachers? Who are the people that are going to help mature the movements? Who are the people that are going to bring the depth to the movement? Um, but occasionally, you know, you get a house church and it's Corinth, and that happens, and you have Thessalonica's also. Um, so well, we're, and, and there's going to be problems Jeff, uh, and difficulties. <laughs> strangely, despite all our learning in the West, I, I think we have a few... Uh, Corinthian problems uh, in our world too. So um, absolutely. <laughs> the, the other the other thing that often people say is, um, you know, th- this obviously works in developing com- countries. All the stories are about the developing world, but the principles don't really apply or have to be radically contextualized and changed uh, before we can start seeing church planting movements in the Western world. Um, Mm. So I'm just wondering, maybe we'll just put that question on notice for a moment and and ask in a moment, you know, uh, what do these principles look like when they're applied in the West? But before we do Mm. that, could you just summarize for me just the half dozen key things that come to mind that this is what God has written on your heart about uh, multiplication movements out of your, your nine years experience in Nepal. What's, what's just, you know, up to about half a dozen key things that come to mind and say, these are, these are just foundational principles. Um, uh, you know, can you, can you reflect a bit on that? Yeah, well, you know, ultimately the one principle that's out of our control is God's Spirit's obviously got to be working there. And uh, so in a lot of ways, we're just joining Him. And so that that's beyond our control. Hmm. But that there are controllables we have. And I think one of the things is, and this is something that David Garrison and Bill Smith have innovated around the world, is we need to look around the world, find what are some of the best practices that are going around the world, see how God's using them, Based on based on that, let's apply it in my area, but let me try it a thousand times before I adjust anything. You know, because a lot of times we want to try it five, six times, we say, ah, it doesn't work. But go out and try it a hundred times. Mm. And then make small incremental adjustments. And so I, I think that's a key thing. So take what we've already been learning, we've seen God using, it's a very solid biblical foundation, then always make incremental adjustments, never big adjustments. Um, I think the other thing that has been extremely helpful that David Garrison and Bill Smith, this idea of finding communities of practice related to church planning is a way to accelerate and create that environment. That's one of the things, um, you know, Bill gave me that opportunity. And because of that, I was able to make adjustments in what I was doing with people I was coaching, with nationals I was working with, and I was able to speak into their ministry. But when I spoke in, because of what I learned, because Bill created that environment, 
spoke volumes. And then all of a sudden, it was some of those key things that led to the innovations to see uh, the movement changed direction. You know, one of the big things for us was to switch from, uh, we always said man of peace, and then we switched and we started saying house of peace. Now, that sounds subtle, but what we we had a hard time forming churches around a man of peace. Just describe, we began uh, to form church. What, maybe it'd be good just to describe what, what is, what was your understanding of a man of peace and, and then why it shifted to house of peace? Yeah, sort of the, the, the takeaway I got early on was a man of peace was somebody receptive to the gospel, and you find them, you win them, and, and that was happening in in, uh, in one of the countries we were working on. Working in, we were winning lots of young people, but when we went to form a church, they had no they had no finances, they had no way to do it. So yeah, they were one to the gospel, but then they couldn't reach their families, they couldn't do anything, they were sort of stuck. So we began to say, what's what's the Bible say? And so we began to think about this concept about switching to house of peace. So instead of winning that, that young guy on the street, we say, man, take us back to your home and let us share the gospel in your home. Would you be willing to talk to your mom and dad and arrange that to happen? And if they did that, we said, hey, man, that's a good sign that we're moving to our house of peace. But it answered a big question. If God was working there and then there was something spiritually happening there, uh, we were actually had a place to start the church. And the goal is once we got in the home, we kept going either until they forced us, told us to leave, or until we established the house church. And so that, that essentially the entry strategy of how do I get into a home along with how do I form a church began on day one. Mm-hmm. And so that was a huge innovation for us. And then when we transferred that insider to insider, um, they passed this on rapidly. And uh, so we kept, we essentially went from this idea of oikos. Now, oikos is your family, your sphere of influence, found a house of peace, and then they began, We the insiders clued them in, where's your other family members who might be receptive to the gospel? Let's go tell them first. And then as soon as they got to that home, if they won that home, they began, they clued them in again immediately. Where's your family who'd be receptive to the gospel? And so we kept switching from this man of this house of peace to oikos, the sphere of influence, to house of peace, and and that sort of all the movements have followed those lines of oikos. Uh, when we ran out of oikos, we started back with a house of peace. And, uh, so that's been a huge, okay. huge, huge innovation. So the oikos but that was because Bill mm-hmm. Smith put us in the right spot. Okay. <laughs> and and the and. The oikos is is the sort of relational world, family and uh, uh, people who are close to you. Um, a working and, world influence, yeah. Okay, but the 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 house of peace is the the doorway that opens up to connect with all of those relational worlds. Yes, when I have. I have no way into that particular area. The first thing I look for is a house of peace. If I already have a believer, I'm going to ask that believer to say, what's your oikos? And so there's two entries into any world. One is the house of peace, and the other is the oikos. And uh, that's just been the two sort of uh, has worked over and over again. We're practicing it here in America, practice it in Asia, and... The question is, if it's God's model, uh, will it work in Asia? Absolutely. Will it work in America? 
and I believe absolutely. Hmm. It's just the the form it takes will look different. I'd imagine an American household is a little bit different to a Nepali household, but the principle that that people live in relational worlds and 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 are deeply influenced by one another that that's true everywhere in the world. Yeah, absolutely. You know, for example, in the cities, one of the things we found in the cities was it was no longer so much around families because many people migrated to cities. So that oikos became maybe much more work-centered or social-centered. The village always tends to be much more relational or family-centered. Mm. And uh, so that that's a subtle difference, but it's one of those things that you we've learned that uh, in a city, I'm looking more towards my work and my social side. In the village, I'm looking for mom, dad, grandpa, aunts, and uncles. Hmm. So, anything else exactly. that, that that stands out as as key foundational principles that that you learnt while you're in in Nepal? Yeah, I think the big thing, and, and this is one of those other things that Bill Smith just drove home to me, is the difference between reproducible and reproducing. Here in America, we have many great reproducible discipleship materials. Uh, my wife is a gifted teacher. She can listen to somebody like Beth Moore, and she can take and listen to it and teach it and, and does phenomenal. But most people can't do that. So is what is available there, is it reproducible? Absolutely. The question is, is it, is it reproducing on the in the average person in the society? And you'd have to say no. And so one of the things we look for is how do I develop discipleship, you know, process that'll be reproducing versus reproducible. And so that's been one of the key things is is that average person in the society of the target group that I'm focusing on, will my discipleship run the whole way through that people group? And so that's where I, I think of the idea of reproducing. And so Bill Smith would always hammer that home. Is it reproducing? Or is it reproducible? And there's a big difference between reproducible and reproducing. And it fits so beautiful with the parable of the kingdom of God that uh, everything in the kingdom of God is reproducing. And uh, so I think that's been another key uh, a key thing. Well, this must have been quite um, a... Oh, go on. Go on. Yep. Well, I, I had one more thing mm. I wanted to share. The, the thing that um, Bill you know, and David got us doing was these communities of practice where on a global scale, uh, looking among strategy coordinator trainers and trainers who are seeing, coaching, uh, experiencing, you know, church planning movements on a level, getting there together to learn from one another. But one of the neat things has been now to take that to the grassroots level. And so in Asia, we've begun to take that to the grassroots level where we start putting together guys who are begin to experience CPM. So we'll put a guy who's got, who's a very uh, well, you know, God's using him in incredible ways, a practitioner, and we put him with this guy who's just starting out, got two or three churches, got another guy who's got six, seven churches, another guy's got 20 churches, another guy's got 100. Put them in a room together and create an atmosphere where they learn from one another. And so everybody's at a different step in the process. And so what happens is we have the insiders passing the information on to one another, and God's Spirit just works among them, because part of what they have is this ethos of, how do I raise this brother up? 
How do I see this guy um, move forward to where he moves to a church planning movement? And so that's been one of the great things that uh, I think uh, Bill and David Garrison have modeled for me, and I've tried to take it all over Asia, anywhere we've gone, but we're actually bringing it here to America, is how do I begin early on to get people involved in a community of practice where we learn from one another? Mm, okay. <laughs> and and it's typically um, in this part of the world, whether it's Australia or, or Europe or the U.S., um, our discussions are around ideas. Uh, somehow mm. we think if we can get the right ideas and the right thinking, that our behavior and everything else will follow from that. But what you're talking about is these people are actually engaged in making disciples and seeing leaders and churches reproducing. And uh, it's getting them in the room. That's where the learning really takes off because they're actually engaged in the harvest. Yeah. Exactly. They're um, they're practitioners, and you know, and it's always interesting to see one guy who you know he's he's stuck at you know maybe church formation, but this guy who's uh, see actually I'll give you I'll give you a great example. I was with a, a brother last week, and uh, four years ago this guy had never started a church uh, in his own area. He's seen in the last four years over 250 new house churches in, in an area in South Asia. So we're sitting there talking to him, and he's just sharing about what God's doing. And it was amazing listening to him. Well, he had a young disciple with him who was working in a city about 3,000 kilometers from where he was. It's a guy's disciple, and first thing he did is he brought this guy out to watch him. Well, this guy went back and immediately started some churches, and he hadn't, he hadn't been able to start any churches. Well, I was talking to this, this man, and so I, I said, well, what's going on? Tell me about what's going on with your disciple here. And he said, well, he's doing well. He's got some new believers. They baptized him. They formed him into groups. But he's got the round thing. I said, what do you mean by the round thing? He said, you know, one leader taking control of six churches. And I said, oh, yeah, I know what you mean. He said, I'm going to get him on that multiplication thing. And so he was, he was working with this young guy to help him understand how to do multiplication. But that insider thing of where he instantly recognized where this guy was and immediately was helping the guy take the next step. And this, this guy's been a believer about six months, and he's in this position of trying to lead these groups. And um, so it's really neat to see Kumar stepping in and helping this guy innovate. And then this guy also had a new believer with him. And uh, so very new work, uh, very exciting, but it was interesting to see how Kumar could look at it and immediately recognize, but he knew how to speak to them, how to take the next step. And, and, uh, and, and, and so the, that's what's a really neat. Because mm, that, that round thing in one sense works. Uh, you know, it happens a lot in the developing world where, Somebody is, is sponsored to, and they can go out and start three or four or five um, churches. Uh, but the paradigm shift was, uh, but that's a dead end unless um, that instead of seeing a circle, you see a multiplication, and that your role is to be a catalyst for multiplication, not just a circuit. Yeah, mm. and what Kumar does is he links them in accountability. So Kumar is holding him accountable, 
but he's also speaking, you know, into this life discipleship. And so, and then he's checking, well, how's it going? What are the struggles? What are the problems? And then he's telling him, now you pass this on to your believers. So then he's asking him, are you passing this on? So otherwise, he's helping to move from that point of where he's the one central point leader to where he's beginning immediately to start looking up for raising new leaders. And uh, that that's what exactly... Um, moves it from that round thing. I love the way he put that, um, but then leads towards multiplication. Yeah. Okay. And Kumar is a practitioner. He's not just a supervisor or an organizational leader or an expert. He's somebody who um, uh, is practicing what he's training and mentoring others in. Absolutely. Well, Jeff, the 